Welcome to the GOAT Genetic Improvement Webinar Series. So this series is going to take place over the next two weeks with presentations starting today and also including July 22nd, the 27th, and the 29th. Uh, so today's, uh, today's presentations are going to be focused more on kind of the basics of genetic improvement with keep and call strategies for genetic selection decisions. This presentation is a joint presentation by myself, Marlene Pivamase. I am a dairy specialist with OMAFRA uh, covering goats, sheep, and cows. Uh, and Erin, you want to introduce yourself briefly? Hi, everyone. I'm Erin Massender. I'm the acting small ruminant specialist with OMAFRA, so covering both uh, sheep and goats. What we're going to talk about today is the importance of genetic improvement. So this is what's going to launch us into talking about genetic improvement over the next two weeks. We're going to be covering the base basics in terms of why we should care about genetic improvement and how maybe we can assess our progress within our herd. So genetic improvement is a long-term goal and provides long-term solutions to issues on the farm. Uh, with some advantages of focusing on genetic improvement include industry and farm level profitability and competitiveness, as well as we're able to kind of address some of the concerns about environmental implications, public perception, and allows us to adapt to future markets. So in terms of preparing and adapting towards future markets, what you mean by this is that we're able to genetically select for animals that help us with improving our product quality, uh, making the product of what uh, consumers are looking for. So this might be um, in terms of components in the milk. So we've seen this a bit in terms of casein protein composition, uh, but there has been some discussion on the cow side uh, about uh, fatty acid composition of milk and, and how we might be able to improve that. Um, to meet consumer demand. Um, also uh, in here as well, we might be looking at this from the perspective of meat tenderness and quality. So in addition to this as well, uh, genetic improvement also allows us to kind of have impact on environmental and societal implications that our operations might have. Uh, so for instance, if we're looking at decreasing disbudding, we might introduce more pole genetics into a herd. Although not currently available right now within Ontario, it's something that, um, that more research needs to be done on. Uh, we're looking at it in terms of decreasing our antimicrobial use. Uh, if we're able to introduce health traits that help uh, improve the health of our animals and the, the resilience and resistant, resistance to disease of our animals, we'll be able to decrease our antimicrobial use within the herd. And looking at welfare traits, we might be looking at, uh, at decreasing our lameness or focusing on, on, on traits that uh, are associated with lameness, as well as methane emissions and feed efficiency, which can kind of address that environmental implications. Uh, feed efficiency also has the benefit of uh, improving our industry competitiveness. And another reason why we're interested in uh, genetic selection, maybe one of the more common reasons is improving our profitability and sector competitiveness. So when we think of the profitability of an operation, often we're thinking about our cost of production. Uh, so this is just a quick example showing a comparison between cost of production for Canadian dairy cows and dairy goats. Uh, based on 2017 cost of production numbers, it costs about 64% more to produce a liter of goat milk that, as it does a liter of milk from cows. Um, and as Marlene mentioned, we are working on a cost of production study. So if you're interested in uh, helping to improve these numbers, uh, be sure to contact her about that. You might be interested in why the cost of production is higher. And of course, there's many different reasons. Um, but one of the main ones is that 
the Canadian dairy cattle industry has put a lot of emphasis on genetic improvements. So today's dairy cow produces the equivalent of 12 dairy goats, but it only consumes about seven goats worth of feed. So we can see how quickly how the cost of production numbers add up to make it more expensive to produce uh, dairy goats. Um, and the dairy cattle industry estimates that about 70% of the improvement in production of milk uh, over time in the last couple of decades is actually attributable to genetic selection. So if we increase our focus on genetic selection in dairy goats, that shows us where we could kind of aim towards. And now I'm gonna go through a few basic concepts of genetic selection, um, kind of as a basis for the rest of the presentations in our webinar series. So let's start by talking about what the general goal of genetic selection is. Of course, every herd has their own breeding objectives and breeding goals, but at the commercial level, uh, our general aim is to increase the production efficiency of the herd. So we might be interested in increasing our production or decreasing mortality or increasing longevity so that we don't have to replace our does as often. But what's important here is that we're interested in the change in the population. So we make selection and culling decisions for individual animals, but what we're actually interested in is the overall change to the average performance of the herd. And we can see that visually in this bell curve graph on the right side of this slide. So this is showing the distribution of animals for any trait. Um, let's say we're looking at weaning weight. So um, we'll have some animals that have low weaning weights and some that will have high weaning weights, but most of the herd will be somewhere in between. Um, and this variability here is what allows us to make genetic selection decisions. And our goal with genetic selection is to change the offspring generation relative to the uh, parental generation. So if we were to only select the top half of our uh, kids to use as replacements, that's this orange shaded area here, what we're hoping by this is that we'll move the average over um, for the offspring generation, this orange dotted line here, uh, with the average at this gray dotted line. So by moving that offspring average over, we're moving towards our next breeding objective. Uh, when we think of selection, it's often easy to focus mostly on the sire side, but uh, just a reminder that both sides count. So uh, mammals have pairs of genes, one that comes from the sire and one from the dam. Because of this, we expect that offspring genetic merit is the average of their parents. So we'll have 50% sire genetic merit and 50% dam genetic merit. And you may hear um, some people in the industry talk about an estimated breeding value or EBV, which is a prediction of an animal's genetic merit based on all of the information we have available. So Brian Sullivan from CCSI will likely talk about that in more detail next week. Because of this uh, expectation of the offspring being the average of their parents, we expect the genetic merit for full siblings to be the same. Though, as I'll talk about in the next slide, that isn't actually the case. Um, so like I said, sires have a greater impact on genetics of the whole herd and it's easy to focus on them, but we shouldn't ignore dam genetics either because any impact we can make to improve our, our doe side of the equation is going to increase the rate of genetic progress for the herd. 
a few practical tips when considering um, replacement rates and how many females to, uh, to keep in the herd. If your sires are far superior to their dams, you wanna keep more replacements because those dolings will be uh, far superior to their dams um, and you'll make more progress that way. But if your sires are similar to the dams in genetic level, you can be pickier about which dolings to keep and have a lower replacement rate. This will help keep your replacement rearing costs down. So genetic selection is a, a quite a complicated process and there's a few different uh, mechanisms that make it more complicated. So we have here our little pedigrees um, for a sire and a dam and then grand sires and grand dams here. So the offspring of these two goats will inherit one copy of the gene in these little squares here. Um, so whether they inherit the, their sire or dam copy, uh, grand sire or grand dam copy is dependent on a process called Mendelian sampling. So the copy of the gene received by individuals is actually random. And this explains why full sibling performance is variable. So some full siblings might receive a favorable copy of the gene while others might receive an unfavorable copy. There's also to make things more complicated, a phenomenon called crossing over, which is the random swapping of genetic material during egg and sperm formation, which adds more variability. So if we repeated the mating between the sire and dam several times, we'd get a whole bunch of offspring. And based on our expectations, we'd expect 25% um, of the genetics to be in common with each of the grandparents. But what we actually see is that some will have more in common with one of their grandparents than the other. Um, so moving into genetic selection, we're always interested in uh, traits which are observable or measurable characteristics of an individual. Traits come in two types, either simple traits or complex traits. Simple traits are affected by one or a few genes with a major influence on performance. They're usually an observed characteristic that's a distinct category, such as coat color or the presence or absence of horns. And we put that visually, this uh, blue squiggly line here represents the animal's genetic material or DNA. And we would have one green gene here that has um, some type of polymorphism or difference that, uh, makes, that makes that trait uh, visible to the, uh, in the animal. Whereas a complex trait is affected by many genes, each with a small influence on performance. The performance is often numeric or continuous. For example, heights or weights or milk yields, that type of thing. And again, to put that visually, here we have our DNA with many different genes that all have an impact on that trait. And that brings us to the key concept of genetics, which is this equation here, P equals G plus E. And what that stands for, is the animal's performance for a given trait, known as their phenotype, is influenced by both their genetics or genotype, the genetic makeup of an animal at a specific gene or across the genetic code, and the environment, which is all the non-genetic factors that influence performance. For example, climate, season, diet, that sort of thing. Heritability is a measure of the proportion of the, that observed phenotypic variation for a trait that is due to genetics and passed from parents to progeny. So the equation here, we have our genetic effect on the top and then a ratio over both the genetic and environmental effects. 
A trait that is highly heritable means that there's more genetic influence on performance for the trait, whereas a trait that's lowly heritable has more of an environmental influence. We typically say that a trait is highly heritable if the heritability is greater than 0.3 uh, and lowly heritable if the trait has a heritability of less than 0.1. These tables have some heritability estimates for some important traits in goats, and I've colored them based on how heritable the trait is. So the traits that have low heritabilities are in this red-orange color, the moderate heritabilities are the purple, and the high heritability traits are the ones in green. And what you might notice if you look at the trends here is typically traits that are related to survival and fitness are the least heritable. So we have an estimate for heritability of CAE resistance of 0.08 or litter size of 0.05. Whereas traits related to the weights of animals um, are more moderately heritable as well as growth rates are, tend to be moderately heritable as well. Uh, and conformation traits can be moderately to highly heritable and milk production traits tend to be the most heritable. Um, so what we can see from this is that some traits ha have a bigger influence of genetics, but that doesn't mean that we can't make genetic progress for the less heritable traits. It just might take a bit more time to actually see that progress. And that brings a common question. Um, if the environment plays such a large role in most traits, why do we care about genetic selection? And the reason is that genetic selection produces cumulative and permanent changes in the population. So we might only make a small amount of progress each year, as we can see in this graph on the right here. But when you add that up over a number of years, we actually end up with a herd that performs quite a bit better um, than before with those small changes. Other reasons that we're concerned about genetic selection is that some environmental factors are completely out of our control, like climate and disease, so we can't really change those. And then others that we can control, like diet, um, improving that environment requires sustained input costs to maintain performance. So if you stop feeding that um, superior diet that's increasing your performance, then you're not going to see that gain in performance in the future. Whereas with genetic selection, we increase productivity without requiring continuous input costs as we essentially make the animals in the herd more efficient. Another concept to be concerned with uh, related to our genetic selection decisions is genetic diversity, which refers to the presence of genetic differences in a population. Genetic diversity is the driving force behind genetic improvement. If there's not variability for a trait in the population, we can't actually improve it. It also increases adaptability for changes to breeding objectives. Um, say we decide that we're less concerned with uh, milk yield in the future and want to be more aware of the composition of that milk, while having variability in the population would allow us to change our breeding objective and go a different route. Um, it also is important to note that genetic diversity is reduced by both inbreeding and selection. Inbreeding is of course the mating of related individuals, which can uh, cause recessive genetic conditions to appear, as well as inbreeding depression, which is a reduction in performance of inbred individuals compared to those that aren't inbred for a trait. Um, the more related animals are, the larger the inbreeding coefficient of the progeny will be. So we have our little pedigree here. Uh, we talked about before that sires and daughters share 50% of their genetics. 
And the inbreeding level of the offspring of that sire and daughter will actually be half that relatedness. So we would see an inbreeding level of 25%. Um, some other examples, if we mate full siblings together, again, they share 50% of their genetics. So the inbreeding would be 25%. Half siblings share 25% of genetics um, and inbreeding would be 12.5%, et cetera. So a few practical tips for managing genetic diversity in the herd. Obviously the gold standard uh, to maintain genetic diversity is to keep individual pedigree records and manage matings to avoid inbreeding. Uh, but if that's not feasible, um, purchasing new buck and doe genetics from outside the herd will decrease the average relatedness of animals in the herd, and therefore um, you'll have less chance of inbreeding. It's also important to avoid excessively selecting replacements from within specific families. So if you um, pick only your very best families that tend to have the best production, then you'll have more relatedness among those animals and increase the chance of uh, causing unfavorable amounts of inbreeding. You can also uh, replace your bucks every few years from outside the herd um, before their daughters enter the herd. And that is another strategy to maintain genetic diversity. Optimizing breeding programs requires a balancing act between the different factors that affect genetic progress. So there's a, many different factors that affect genetic progress, including selection intensity, which is how picky you are with which breeding candidates to keep. Selection accuracy, which is how correct you are at identifying the best animals in your herd. And this is influenced by the amount of information we have in order to make those decisions. Genetic variation, uh, how, var how much variability there is for that trait. Um, this, again, as I said, if there's no variability for a trait, you're not able to make genetic progress. Generation interval, or how rapidly you, uh, offspring replace their parents in the breeding herd. We have a shorter generation interval will make faster genetic progress. And finally, the number of traits that you're selecting on. So as more traits are selected, the progress for each individual trait decreases due to different trade-offs. So for example, if you might pick one, um, one doe based on having really good milk yield, uh, but might compromise a little bit in terms of confirmation. So those trade-offs reduce genetic progress for each specific trait. Now I'm gonna pass it over to Marlene to talk a little bit about herd dynamics and how we actually put these genetic concepts in practice. Yeah, so I'm gonna talk a little bit more about how animals are going to be entering the herd and exiting the herd, and also some of the importance in terms of setting breeding goals for your operation. So first thing we need to think about is how we how animals enter and exit the herd. So we can either purchase replacements or we can raise our uh, herd replacements within the herd itself. Um, so there's advantages and disadvantages to each one of these, which we'll talk about in a couple of slides here. We also have to consider in terms of how animals are exiting the herd, because this is going to determine in terms of how many replacements we need to keep within the operation. Uh, so it might be in the form of marketing kids, they might be marketing animals and marketing does, um, those that are going to go to other operations to provide a productive life there. You might uh, call breeding stock, so this might be going uh, animals that are going to market for slaughter, um, as they're no longer economically make sense to keep within the herd. And then we also have deaths as well, so mortalities are also going to play in as an exit from the herd as well. 
So more specifically, when we're thinking about exiting the herd, uh, we want to categorize these into two different, uh, two different culling categories. So involuntary and voluntary culling. So involuntary culling is the removal of breeding stock or potential replacements in the herd that have no productive future. So this could be due to things like illness, injury, infertility, uh, CAE positivity, or death. Uh, so these are things that are kind of more forced upon uh, our decision making in terms of like that the animal has to leave the herd because of these reasons. Uh, voluntary culling, on the other hand, is the removal of breeding stock or potential placements because they don't need an economic or breeding goal objective um, criteria. So in this case, we might see animals that are being selected, to, selected against to leave the herd um, in the form of poor production or poor temperament uh, along that side. Mortality also plays a key role in terms of exiting the herd. It uh, has a big impact in terms of how our genetic progress can be made. Uh, so here we have an example in terms of kid mortality, uh, in terms of uh, how that has an impact in terms of where we can make selections. So herd A has 30% kid mortality and herd B has 5% kid mortality. So the purple goats are the ones that are going to be at the live of this scenario and the black ones are the ones that are um, going to be have mortality. So if we take 30% of the kids out of herd A, uh, you'll see that we still have animals that we can select from, but compared to herd B, so if we take 5% out of that herd, um, herd B, we have much more selection that we can make. So this would allow us to have more of a voluntary culling or a voluntary selection uh, in terms of what animals we're keeping for the next generation. So the impact of mortality on our um, on genetic improvement, um, if we have high kid and high adult mortality, uh, this reduces the selection intensity. So this doesn't allow us to have animals to select from, um, and we're maybe more likely keeping animals that are alive um, at breeding age or um, bred back. It also will limit the genetic progress that can be made within the herd as um, our voluntary culling decisions um, are not going to be, our voluntary culling decisions are not going to be made based upon um, performance. We're going to be looking at kind of more involuntary culling. So for this slide here, we're looking at entering the herd um, and the pros and cons of that. Uh, I'm not gonna read through all of them. I'm gonna let you read them on the slide as they are now, but I wanna bring your attention in terms of, um, of some of the key concepts on the slide. Uh, so, Raising replacements, buying replacements, and artificial insemination have pros and cons for each one of them. Uh, purchase cost is going to be something where we're going to see that in buying replacements, that that's going to be a con on that side in terms of how much money we're going to have to pay um, based on the availability of performance recorded bucks and does. Um, but uh, when we're thinking about raising replacements, um, that comes at no cost, like we're not having a purchase cost, but we do have the cost of raising those animals um, so that we can use them within the herd, um, as well as the labor that's associated with that as well. In addition to uh, that as well, if we think about purchase costs with artificial insemination, we may be paying um, less and it'll allow us to be able to uh, afford genetics that we would be unaffordable if we were to purchase that animal. So um, that isn't a great option on that side. In terms of biosecurity risk, uh, depending on what the uh, current status of, of, uh, of disease is on your herd, um, we do need to consider biosecurity risk when we are purchasing replacements in. 
so if you are purchasing replacements in, um, you're going to have an open herd um, and it's advisable to make sure that you're containing that biosecurity risk as much as possible. So isolating the animal before being able to bring them into co-mingling in with your herd is advisable, as well as asking for health um, status of the herds that you are buying from. Um, with the raising replacements and artificial insemination, we do see that biosecurity risk as being lower. So in terms of genetic diversity and buying better genetics, um, there's kind of pros and cons to each one of these. So with buying replacements, we have the ability to increase our genetic diversity by bringing new genetics into the herd uh, and potentially purchasing better genetics. But this is really going to be dependent on whether we have uh, availability of performance recorded does and bucks to be able to tell whether the performance is actually better than the animals that we have um, within our operation. You can also see that with artificial insemination, we also have that increase of uh, genetic evaluations and we're able to bring that gener genetic diversity in. Uh, with raising our own replacements, we do have a con of having lower genetic diversity. So because we're keeping the families that we have within there. Um, so this can limit the genetic progress in terms of not being able to be better than the animals that we have currently on the farm. Uh, with artificial insemination, uh, the, some of the cons around this, uh, just to highlight briefly, is that uh, typically you'll have some lower conception rates and you do need to be trained in artificial insemination to be able to breed, uh, to use this type of breeding or be using an experienced breeder. So we're gonna move on to decision-making. So decision-making is going to be focused more on how many animals we're going to keep and how we actually keep, decide what animals are going to be kept within the herd. So how many animals uh, are really based on uh, your herd turnover rate, which is dependent on the number of voluntary and involuntary um, exits of, from the herd, as well as what your average herd inventory is. Uh, so the records that you need to keep in order to calculate this include uh, animal inventory, the number of does that die on the farm, including those that ones that are euthanized, number of does that are exiting the herd for economic reasons. So those are, are voluntary calls on that side. And, uh, and then we're going to use these numbers to be able to calculate the herd turnover rate. The key part of this is that we're looking over a specific time period. Uh, so sometimes people will focus on a particular lactation length. Um, it might be over a calendar year, um, or it also could be based on a group of animals. Um, so herd turnover rate actually doesn't only just gives us in terms of, okay, well, how many, how many replacements am I expected to keep for each year? but it can also give an indication in terms of where we can make improvements for our management. Another key thing here as well is we need to determine what our desired herd size is. Uh, when we're looking at the difference between an expanding herd compared to a stable herd, you may have um, less of, you may have more replacements that you're keeping and, and less of a herd turnover rate um, in an expanding herd because you're trying to grow that herd for the product that you're trying to sell. Um, as compared to a stable operation, you might have uh, more stable uh, herd turnover rates, so you can kind of predict year to year in terms of how many replacements you're typically keeping. It is important to note, though, that um, mortality plays a big key role in this. So if you're having high mortality um, in your kids or your adults, you might actually see that reflected within the herd turnover rate in terms of either a very high turnover rate because of uh, adult mortality or a very low turnover rate if you have high kid mortality because 
uh, you're having to try and keep does longer because you don't have the replacements to be able to to um, to fill that herd turnover rate and make voluntary calling decisions. So other considerations when you're considering herd turnover rate is that uh, we need to be able to consider uh, your ability to produce and sell your product. So uh, where what markets are you selling into? Um, what herd size do you need to support that? And another important part part here is um, whether you have capacity in order to house all those animals. Um, so have adequate barn space and also have adequate feed uh, for all of those animals. And then it could also be focused in terms of a consideration on moderate versus intense culling. So if you're looking for to uh, have less CAE in your herd, you might have more intensive culling because you're culling out positive animals for CAE. So all these considerations kind of make it hard to tell you what is a good herd turnover rate or a bad turnover rate. Um, but typically we see an average around 30% uh, in the dairy industry um, for herd turnover, herd turnover rates. We will be walking through these calculations next Thursday um, with a few examples of herds that are expanding, stable, and have some other challenges in discussing them. So as a part of this, as well, um, important decision-making piece is what animals we're gonna keep. And this is what's going to be based upon our breeding goals. Uh, so it's defining SMART breeding goals, which stands for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely, are going to help you kind of define what your selection criteria is going to be. So if you start with defining your breeding goal, it allows you to be able to then say, okay, this is what animals I'm going to keep as replacements. And these are the ones that I'm going to call from the herd. Um, and the key part of this is that you need data in order to be able to make some of these decisions. After you've made the decisions, it's important to go back and evaluate your herd performance about whether the decisions that you made were have been actually impacting um, your herd performance in, that are going to be meeting your breeding goal. So it's important to keep in mind that breeding goals can change over time. So um, it might be maybe there's a shift in the market demand uh, by consumers. So um, that, that could maybe change your breeding goal. It could be that um, the, the animals that you have currently um, might, have, uh, might be changing your breeding goal so that you can achieve different things, um, as well as new technologies coming on or new traits that are coming available that might change your breeding goal as well. It's important to note here as well that genetic improvement is a long-term game. So um, you need to have long-term strategy in order to be able to see genetic improvement within your herd um, with average generations of uh, four years. Uh, so being consistent and systematic about your selection is what's going to help you with achieving your breeding goals. And uh, I'm not gonna read all the questions at the side here, but um, you'll have access to the slides to be able to see of what questions you need to ask yourself in order to make a SMART breeding goal. So how does a SMART breeding goal actually apply into uh, the selection of animals? Um, so, you know, you might ask yourself, well, how do I decide what animals I'm going to keep? Um, so we have our selection of uh, six animals here. So if you don't have a breeding goal or a SMART breeding goal, you might be telling your thing, um, some things to yourself in terms of like, well, this animal survived your breeding age. Oh, this doe bred back another year, I'll keep her. Um, or maybe I just feel this animal is good. Um, if you do have a smart breeding goal, you will be looking at it more from the perspective of how you might weigh um, some 
needs within your herd. So you might be considering performance, confirmation, health, reproduction, and temperament of that animal in order to be able to define what animals are going to be kept for the next generation. We're going to hear a little bit more about that over the next couple of days, um, more specifically related to meat goat as well as dairy goats as well. So what information do you need? Uh, individual animal identification is important. So we need to know whose records are associated with you over the lifetime of those animals. Um, we need to define what data and records to keep. So um, this could look a little bit different for each operation, um, depending on where they're at in terms of starting with the record keeping. So um, that's keep in mind. And there is a need for data analysis as well. So overall breeding programs are really based upon the production system that you have. So you're gonna be looking at it from the perspective of, you know, of what your breedings are, when breedings are happening, uh, what breeding goals you have for your operation, which is gonna help kind of define what information you should be collecting um, and then participating within some of the breeding programs we're gonna hear about um, in the next couple of days. Um, that's going to be able to give you an estimate and selection criteria to be able to decide what animals you're going to keep based upon their genetic merit. We then get to the point of actually being able to select animals and matings, um, and then we'll see that increase of the trait within the herd, which brings us back to an overall evaluation of whether we're actually seeing um, what we desire to see with our breeding goals. So thank you for listening. Contact information is on here. Again, if you want to sign up for some of our next webinars that are coming up, you can email me for more information on that.